Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it through live history storytelling in Berlin and beyond. In this episode, we are really beyond doing our first live show via Zoom. It's not quite the same as being on stage in a darkened bar or sold-out theater, but we did have a lovely virtual audience on hand for our collaboration with Stanza, the Scottish International Poetry Festival. But before we get to that, I want to wish you, our lovely podcast audience, a happy Women's History Month, and welcome the new listeners joining us who may have heard about us from Stitcher, CC, or Pamela Toller's blog, History in the Margins, or from Stanza. We're glad you're here. Of course, at the Dead Ladies Show, every month is Women's History Month, right? Our show today comes simultaneously from Scotland and Germany, with Dead Lady Show co-founders Katie, Florian, and myself dialing in from Berlin. Our presenter Annika Lubkowitz appearing from a very special location, the home of her dead lady, outside Munster, and our stanza host Annie Rutherford kicking things off from Edinburgh. Here's Annie. Hello and welcome. It is wonderful to have you all here for this special Stanza Dead Ladies Show crossover event. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Annie Rutherford. I'm Programme Coordinator at Stanza, Scotland's International Poetry Festival. And I am also a huge fan of the Dead Ladies Show, so I am really excited for this event. This is actually a collaboration which we had wondered about as a possibility over a year ago, and we had no idea that by the time 2021 came along, podcasting and um, international digital events would suddenly be very relevant. So in that way, it's worked out quite well. The Dead Ladies Show is a Berlin-based events series and also a podcast. They celebrate women who were fabulous when they were alive, from spies to pioneering activists to cookery show writers to today poets. And one of the reasons we wanted to collaborate with them, uh, if you're a stanza regular, you'll know that we have a past and present section where um, contemporary speakers talk about their favourite past poets. And this felt like a really good tie-in. I'm going to keep this short. I'm going to hand over to our hosts for the evening, Katie Derbyshire and Florian Dysons. Thank you. Uh, Annie, thank you for inviting us. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Today we're going to have... Annika Lubkovitz talking about a woman. <laughs> Let me just tell you a little bit about her. She's a, a German book addict who studied in Edinburgh and Berlin. She works for our friends in Münster, the Borg Hülzhoff Center for Literature. And she co-founded the literary magazine Sachen mit Wörtern and has published two different books already about um, contemporary nature writing and urban walking. Um, she's currently kind of combining her passions, I think, and thinking about women writers and the outdoors. Welcome, Annika. Uh, Annika, it, it, to the untrained eye, it might look like you have a Zoom background, but you have a real background. Yes, it's a real virtual background. <laughs> um, this is where I am, actually. I mean, thank you so much for the very nice introduction. Um, this is actually... Um, at the Rüsch House, where um, Annette von Drostetzehöz, the woman I want to talk about today, lived. And um, it's basically the same setting, the same furniture, and the same atmosphere, I hope at least. 
which she also experienced. So it's quite special for me <laughs> to be here. And I hope you can also join me in enjoying this wonderful space. I know I can see a lot of sort of hypnotically green wallpaper that's really drawing me in. Yet it also has kind of a, a little bit of a haunting. Is it, you know, are there other alive people in the building? Um, <laughs> or is it only ghosts? And mostly ghosts, yeah. We've actually, we did a show there and it was, it was very cold. So I hope you have the heating on. Yes, we prepared and started um, doing the heating a couple of days ago. So um, <laughs> it's actually comfortable now. Good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. It looks um, gorgeous. Uh, yeah, and then without any further ado, I think it's time for Annika to tell us about Annette. Take it away. Yeah, thank you so much again. And um, yeah, thank you for Annie for the introduction, for Susan as well. I'm very happy to be um, part of Stancer and part of the Dead Ladies Show. It's a great honor. Before I start, um, I wish to thank Shane Anderson, Daniel Falb, Monika Rink and Annie Rutherford for their excellent translations of the poems from which I will quote in my presentation. So without them, I would not have been able to do the presentation. Um, the remarkable lady I wish to talk about was indeed a lady in the literal sense. I mean, including castles and everything. Um, she was a born Freifräulein, which is a German title of nobility. Um, which translates, as far as I know, as Baroness into English. Anna, Elisabeth, Franziska, Adolfina, Wilhelmina, Ludovica, Freien, von Droste zu Hülshoff, more commonly known as Annette von Droste Hülshoff. Or, as we used to say, back in the 90s, the woman from the 20 Deutsche Mark banknote. Her poem, The Boy in the Moor, is ranked higher than any Goethe poem in the list of the best-known German poetry, and yet she is relatively little known outside of Germany, which I hope to change by my talk as well. Um, this portrait, which you can see right now, um, shows the author in her early 20s and was done after a painting by Wilhelm Stiel. Don't let yourself be fooled by the fancy color and the difficult and strange hairstyle. Annette van Droste was a woman who knew exactly what she wanted. She was quite a tough cookie. At the back of the banknote, you see the obligatory writer's quill and a large beech tree. It references the work for which Annette van Droste is most famous today, her prose piece, The Judenbuche, The Jews' Beach, from 1842. A curious mix of murder mystery, horror story, and realistic novella. It is about several murders in the forest of Westphalia and treats such diverse topics as environmental destruction and anti-Semitism in the rural communities of Westphalia. Scholars have bitten their teeth out on this enigmatic piece of writing. It is full of loose ends. One of the more problematic bits which I want to mention here is that whereas it condemns the anti-Semitism of its characters on one level, it still uses anti-Semitic stereotypes of its time on another level. So it is a weird mixed text. As my talk will focus on Droste's poetry, I only refer to the novella to show that when it came to trees and other parts of the natural world, 
Annette von Droste had quite a unique approach, which set her apart from her predecessors and contemporaries, especially the Romantics. She had what I would call a taste for nature noir. Perhaps not altogether sinister, but a little haunted is how Droste's place of birth uh, looks like. Here you can see Burghülshof, a moated castle in Westphalia near the city of Münster. Here, little Annette was born in January 1797. She was two months early and not expected to live. She did in the end, but she had to bear the consequences of the premature birth all her life. She was a weak, sickly child, and as an adult too, she struggled with the sheer infinitude of illnesses, all documented with a certain pride in her letters. Nervousness, abdominal pains, a weak lung, a weak heart, nausea, anxiety, panic attacks, periods of depression, headaches, weariness, catars, and whatnot. Considering that she spent most of her life in damp castle chambers and in uncomfortable coaches, it is clear that having a weak constitution was no fun. Often she complained on how her ill health kept her from writing, quite drastically saying she felt like an invalid pug. She doesn't look like one, but you can see from this comment that she had a quite merciless sense of self-humor. Her worst problem, however, were her eyes. She was so short-sighted that she could only see what was right in front of her. Everything else was blurry. In this biography of Droste, her close friend, Levin Schöcking, a writer, describes the small woman as moving unladylike with her neck thrust forward, closer to people than etiquette found adequate, with squinted eyes. But seeing little also made her care less about what those around her thought. She lived in her own world and with a mind of her own too. Droste wrote her first poem when she was seven, at least that's what she herself claims in a later poem. It was about a little cockerel which the speaker tries to make eat out of her hands. A little girl writes a poem about an attempt to tame a male bird. Isn't that an interesting image for a woman who already early in her life dreamed of succeeding in the world of men, not as a wife, mother or mistress, but as an intellectual? Who would baffle male critics long after her death? Poetry back in Dross's time was considered man's business, at least if it was to be taken serious. Women, especially noble women, were welcome to make poetic attempts, as long as they never ventured too far from a chosen set of topics deemed adequate. They were expected to remain within the boundaries of a dilettantism that was pleasantly entertaining in family gatherings, but certainly nothing to be presented in the public. Some of Droste's texts were written for such audiences. When she finally did publish her first poetry collection in 1838, aged 41 already, it was semi-anonymously and only 64 copies were sold. And yet, here she is looking quite pleased with herself in the year of her first book publication. Young Droster had never been very interested in needlework and other activities considered suitable for young ladies. 
What she wanted was travel to Africa and Asia, talk politics and write poems. In her poem, Restlessness, probably written in 1816, she describes a powerful urge for freedom, a longing for the distant, a wonderful instance of female wanderlust, which does not fail to address the limits imposed on women's life in that period. In the last stanza, she contrasts her longing for the distant with the narrowness of the presupposedly female sphere of the domestic. They would have us chained to our own hearths. They call our longings madness or a dream. And yet the heart, this little clump of earth, would have for all creation enough room. Even though her views and opinions would become more conservative in her later life, many texts from her teenage years and early 20s read proto-feminist. In her unpublished drama, Berta, she discussed the role of women in society from various perspectives. One of the heroine's antagonists argues that women who leave the place allotted to them and compete with men, for example, by becoming professional writers, lose their femininity. It was a common and powerful opinion in Droste's time, in spite of the fact that there were various women who succeeded or were succeeding in literary careers, such as Katharina Schöpking, Sophie Mero, and Johanna and Adele Schopenhauer, some of whom were actually close friends of Droste's. Droste had been an inquisitive and stubborn child soaking in Greek and Latin, as well as history, geography, and natural history. To her death, she obtained a very unladylike infatuation with fossils, rocks, and minerals. Here are some she collected as on display here, actually, in the rooms of the Rischhaus. Her well-educated and matron-like mother also supported Droste, if a little reluctantly with her wish to improve her poetry by making her acquainted with several local literary legends. She also met the Grimm brothers, who were a part of a circle of literati, which included Droste's uncles, August and Werner von Haxthausen. They met at the Bürgerhof in East Westphalia and were interested in collecting fairy tales and legends from the region. When young Droste was introduced to the circle at Birkendorf, the men were impressed, but also repelled by her intelligence and self-confidence. At the Birkerhof, and you can see it here on a drawing done by Droste herself, Droste fell in love with the promising young poet Heinrich Straube, a commoner, and her aristocratic relatives were not amused. They had already observed her unseemly abandonment of female modesty with great skepticism and derided her poetic ambitions in every possible way. Now she had gone too far, risking the family's reputation. They were more than happy to get involved in an intrigue worthy of a Jane Austen novel, which was to put to a test Droste's love for Straube. I recommend Karen Duve's novel, Fräuleinette's Kurzer Sommer and Barbara Boy's excellent biography at this point for one likely version of what happened during the summer of 1820. What is sure is that it was painfully unpleasant for Droste. The lovers were separated and Droste was driven into a period of shame and depression. 
What followed from this personal tragedy, however, was an astonishing collection of poems on religious themes, which testifies to Droster's growth as a poet. Droster has often been portrayed as a devout Catholic and representative of a conservative Biedermeier culture, a term which in Germany evokes pretty much the same associations as the term Victorianism does in the English-speaking world. These poems, however, reveal a deep inner struggle which stretches the thought system of Christianity in which it is played out to its very limits. Perhaps the affair also simply marked the end of Droste's interest in men, As Angela Steidele has shown, Droste's poems often reveal a pronounced desire for women, and there are several clues that Droste may have had love affairs with other women. After Hulshof Castle, we come to a second important place in Droste's life, and here it is, and here again in more likely weather, in the more likely weather of the Münsterland. Um, a change of scenery also opened a new chapter in Droste's life. After her father's untimely death in 1826, she moved with her mother and sister to a remote manor house a few miles away, the Rischhaus, which is where I am now. And as you can see, um, the wallpaper hasn't changed that much since then. The avid collector of Naturalia called the rooms she inhabited there the snail shell, das Schneckenhäuschen. It was a place of withdrawal, of inwardness, but also of encounters with the non-human world. Removed from the social obligations at the castle, Droste could now dedicate a significant amount of time to her writing and her musical compositions and take long walks in the surrounding heathland. Her famous poem, The Boy in the Moor, also published in the collection of 1844, describes the marshland surrounding the Rüschhaus in the uncanny hour before nightfall in the vivid imagination of a child. Oh, how eerie to walk across the moor when it's teeming with peat fire smoke, when the mists do veer like phantoms and the tendrils tangle in the bush, when underneath each step a spring wells up, when from the crevice it hisses and sings. Oh, how eerie to walk across the moor when the reeds are rustling in the haze as honorable women weren't supposed to wander about on their own, Droste often wailed the fact that she did so by having male protagonists in her poems experience what she did, in this case, the boy. The poem shows Droste certainly is a true champion of the uncanny, and she is so good at it exactly because she uses so many details and registers all kinds of different sounds and visual details. Since I found out that they died in the same year, I've been wondering, would it be accurate to imagine Droste the way Emily Bronte is often portrayed in movies? A lonely woman walking across wild moorland, a dramatic gray sky above her, the dark dress flapping, her face thoughtful and moody. I guess it would be necessary to add a humorous note. The woman pauses, short-sightedly squints, and in the next moment is on her knees, looking at a rock through her magnifying glass, while thoughtlessly soaking her dress in mud. In one of her letters, Droste describes herself as crawling literally on all fours on the wayside, searching for fossils.
especially in Germany, if we think of the outdoors, we have in mind Caspar David Friedrich's painting Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, which was completed in 1818 when Droste was right at the beginning of her literary career. We think, in other words, of men, lonely men, in breathtakingly empty landscapes. We think of writers with first names like William, Jean-Jacques, and Johann Wolfgang. But they weren't alone. There were women too, and they had different stories to tell. Droste was one of them, and she could look just as moody as Friedrich's Wanderer. In her satirical poem, Poets Feeling for Nature, Droste caricatures a type of nature lover which the Scottish poet Kathleen Jamie has recently called the lone enraptured male. She describes a blonde 18-year-old with ivy in his hair, violets in his hand, and emphatic lines on his lips, carrying his youth romantically into spring without any deeper knowledge of the natural world that surrounds him. Oh yes, Droste had a sharp tongue and she was not afraid to use it. In her nature poetry, Droste makes a clear cut with the romantic tradition and its rhapsodizing forms of nature worship. Clear away the vague mists and look at what really is in front of you, she seems to say to Caspar David Friedrich in this poem. Fun fact, the young man in the poem is actually called Friedrich. It may or may not have been due to her limited but highly specialized vision that Droste in her writing tended to focus on the small details. With scientific exactitude, she describes the landscapes in which she lived and worked, often using the botanical names of plants, which um, makes uh, her poems appear oddly encyclopedic. In Droste's poems, nature is never abstract or distant, but almost too close something you can touch, but that touches you back, something to become entangled in. In several poems, she prominently describes Wasserfäden, water threads, a colloquial term for the green algae variety of the botanical name Cladophora. They entwine and embrace the poem's speaker like a web. They are compared to blood vessels even. This image is very close to our modern understanding of the relation between humans and nature. 15 years before the publication of Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, which would put an end to the idea of humankind as pride of creation, they suggest that humans are part of nature, not in a tightly woven fabric of interspecies relationships. You have here, in other words, the modern idea of ecology. Up until today, the people of Westphalia refer to Droste as our Annette. In reality, Droste traveled quite a lot and spent much time writing letters to an impressive network of correspondents all over Europe. She had the happiest and most productive period of her life in the opposite corner of Germany, in Meersburg Castle at Lake Constance, where she lived with her sister, her brother-in-law and her beloved literary friend, Levin Schücking. She also wrote all her famous Westphalian poems, including The Boy in the Moor here, where she had a room or rather a turret of her own. It is here where she seems to have come closest to the freedom she had been yearning for all her life. 
Her poem on the tower clearly references the turret in which she lived in her brother-in-law's castle and stood on a balcony high up the tower surrounded by shrieking starlings and like a maenad letting the blast dishevel my streaming untidy hair. Oh, wild fellow or daredevil coxcomb, I'd like to enfold you with gusto and sinew to sinew to steps from the edge then wrestle in mortal combat. All her life, Annette von Droste remained torn between social expectations and the wish for self-fulfillment. Between her aristocratic origin and her liberal ideas, the feeling of duty towards her family and her literary ambitions. She certainly wasn't a revolutionary. She wasn't a Georges Sand and neither took part in the revolutionary fights nor the campaigning for women's right to vote. Most of her rebellious spirit seems to have gone into the confrontation of poetic conventions. Only in the last part of her life, her works were slowly beginning to be recognized by her contemporaries. One of her reviewers of the second poetry collection patronizingly calls her a poetess of scarcest blessing who is authorized to wrestle with male poets for any prize. Whereas Friedrich Engels, of all people, had already compared her first poetry collection to the works of Shelley and Byron. From the publisher's advance for the Jew speech, she could even purchase a small house and vineyard at Lake Constance. Unfortunately, due to increasing health problems, she was never able to really enjoy the years of her life's work. She died in 1848, in the year of the spring revolutions in Germany. Her friends, Levin Schücking and Elise Rüdiger, took it over to write biographies and release convolutes of still unpublished texts to the public. Generations of scholars would unearth and decipher layer for layer of her notes and scripts, trying to make sense of this mystifying woman. It turned out Droste really had been born too early. Only later generations would appreciate about her writing that quality which contemporaries criticized as obscure and unintelligible. Her fascination with ambivalence, insecurity, and contradiction shows that Droste was not only a contemporary of John Keats, she also shared his negative capability. Droste's gift, perhaps unsurprisingly for someone half blind, was to see what others didn't. In her travel books on Westphalia, she describes the phenomenon of second sight. The forekeeper, those who are bestowed with second sight, see funeral processions, armies and battles, events that will take place in the future long after their death. In that sense, Droste too was a forekeeper. On this daguerreotype, she also looks grim enough to be one. In literary history, Droste's work sits uncomfortably between romanticism and realism. There is a rapturous, dreamy side to her writing, a fascination with the supernatural and the freedoms of the imagination. There is also a mercilessly unveiled understanding of human nature and the shortcomings of society, a sober matter-of-factness that seems entirely at odds with the former characteristics. What makes her poetry so strong, however, in my eyes, is exactly the conflict between these extremes, negotiated by humor and rigid self-reflection. Indeed, 
Droste's sense of self and view of the world, her inner struggles and her sense of displacement strike me again and again the more I read of her as surprisingly modern. Thank you very much. Annika, I want to give you a big hug and just go to the bar and get a drink with you. That was marvelous. Thank you so much. I think now it's time for us to unmute and do a round of applause. Am I right? I'm right. Annika Lipkowitz on Annette von Drosterhöshoff. We have images of Annette's delightful green room at Haus Ruschhaus, where Annika was speaking from, along with some slightly scary daguerreotypes of Annette and info on some of the images and books Annika mentioned. And that's all at our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast, and on our social media channels at deadladyshow. Heartfelt thanks to Annie and Eleanor at Stanza, Brigitte, Saif, and Jörg at the Center for Literature, and of course, Annika and Katie and Florian. And thanks to all of you for listening. So here comes our theme tune, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Let us know what you think of the show and which dead ladies you think we should cover next by emailing info at deadladyshow.com or just give us a shout on social media. We'll be back next episode with our classic Dead Lady Show format, the kind without a mute button. So stay tuned for more stories of great ladies. See you then. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from Stanza, Scotland's international poetry festival.